Good morning, everybody. I want to invite our children to Children's Church. Kathy will meet you back there. And uh, when we get going there, we'll, uh, we'll open the word of prayer before we turn to the scriptures. So let's pray together. Uh, Lord, um, we have spent weeks under a heat bubble that has just baked the Southwest. And uh, Lord, this week, by your kindness and mercy, you burst that bubble and the temperatures are beginning to come back down. So Lord, we're grateful for this reminder of your mercy to us, your kindness to us, that um, Lord, these things are not out of your control, but you bring them about as you deem right. And Lord, I just want to thank you publicly because Friday night after the heat broke and uh, the evening got down to the 80s and I took the dog for a walk and light, gentle summer rain began to fall. Lord, I was just overcoming my heart thinking, this is God saying, I was angry, but I still love you. A way to just take the intensity of that heat and then to experience the grace that, that you give us in this light, beautiful shower. And it was just a mercy. Um, Lord, it could have been a torrential downpour. It could have been another week of 109 temperatures, but I just felt your grace and your presence there. So thank you for your kindness to us. And we don't deserve it. Uh, there's nothing we can do to, to warrant it. There's plenty we can do to drive it away. And yet, Lord, you cause the sun to shine on the righteous and the unrighteous. You cause the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. And so thank you for your mercy to us. Father, I want to pray now for the... Um, United Kingdom, with the passing of Queen Elizabeth, Lord, this is really a turning point for them. They have a new king. They have a new uh, prime minister. The, the future is so uncertain for them now. The, the, the path ahead is so unclear to us. And so, Lord, what I want to ask is that you would bless the leadership of the United Kingdom um, with great wisdom. Lord, would you fill them with, with an understanding of you that just surpasses anything they expected? Help them to lead well. Uh, Lord, we pray for them. And Father, I pray especially for the nation as a whole. Um, the churches have been closing there at a rapid, rapid rate as the, the nation which once sent missionaries around the globe now turns their back to you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would open the eyes of the nation to the glories of Jesus Christ and spark revival. To that end, Lord, we pray for the missionaries there, especially for Matt and Becca, our missionaries that we're supporting. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would cause their outreach to have fruit, that through their efforts, Lord, the gospel would be preached clearly, hearts would be changed, and people would be brought into your glorious kingdom, transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. So have mercy on that nation. And Lord, to that same end, would you do that here? We pray for the United States as a whole, that you would bring revival and refreshing from the Lord. Lord, for the state of California, would, would you bring that about through the faithful preaching of your word, through the, the sharing of the gospel, through your church? Father, for the Antelope Valley, we pray that uh, you would begin revival here. And Lord, would you bring, begin it in our church and in our hearts this morning? Uh, Father, as we turn now to your word, um, this is a challenging section. And so, Holy Spirit, we really, really need you to show up to open our eyes and our hearts to your word and help us to understand. Uh, Lord Jesus, we're counting on your promise that the Spirit would be with us and would help us to know your words. So be with us now, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. So before I begin, um, I want to talk a little bit about this section. This, this portion of uh, Second Peter 
is extraordinarily complicated. It is really a difficult passage. And this is the point where I'm going, why did I pick this to preach? Why, why did I pick this book? But it's God's word. And so it really is accessible to us. We can get something from it. But there are some technical issues that I want to bring up before we get to the text. Okay. So first of all, this portion of Second Peter is extremely similar to Jude, Jude, the book of Jude. It's not word for word, but it's concept for concept. And some of the words line up. And so there's a discussion of which one had the priority. Is Jude copying from Peter, Peter from Jude, or are they both copying from a third party we don't have? save all the effort. Let me just cut to the chase. In verses 17 and 18 of Jude, he says that he refers to our apostles telling us that in the final days, scoffers will come with their scoffing. I think he's quoting Peter because in, in the next chapter, in verse three of chapter three, Peter warns that the scoffers will come with their scoffing. And so I think Jude is copying from Peter. I think he's picked it up and he's, he's, he's repeating the apostles' words so the reason I bring that up is because I'm not going to look to Jude to try to understand Peter. Um, I'm just going to go with what Peter is saying. So that's the first really technical issue. The second really technical issue is right in the middle of the passage, uh, Peter just drops Balaam in and kind of mentions him in passing. He's assuming that we understand who Balaam is. And, and really what happens when I studied this is Balaam, the story of Balaam frames this entire section. So normally at this point in the sermon, I would tell a story, something more contemporary, something interesting that would kind of help us understand the framework of the passage. I didn't need to this week. We, Peter dropped it in my lap. He said, tell him about Balaam. So the beginning of the sermon, I'm going to retell a portion of the story of Balaam so that it's fresh in our minds. And then when we get to Balaam in the text, we'll have that background in place and then we can understand what he's saying there. The third kind of technical thing is 17 through 22. That last portion is really brain-breaking hard. Peter uses the pronoun them and doesn't tell us who he's necessarily referring to. So it really can be difficult to understand. So what I'm going to do when I get to that point is I'm going to try to tell it and substitute who I think he's talking about by them. So that is going to be really complicated. If you don't have a Bible, get one. We've got some out on the table in the lobby. It would be really helpful at that last portion of the ver of the uh, section if you had your Bible open in front of you and you could follow along in it, because it's just, it's hard to get through. Um, and the reason that it's so important that I want you to, to be able to tune in and pay attention and lock into it, because this is where Peter begins to apply this lesson to us. He begins to bring it to us. So I think it's pretty important to do that. And so before I begin, the other thing that we need to remember, because this gets really into all sorts of difficult sections about people being judged and that kind of stuff, is to remember what Second Peter is about. Peter didn't stop writing about what he wrote about at the beginning. He's not going to pick it up at the end. This is part of it. So Second Peter, he writes to us because he wants us to grow in grace. That's his point. So even this difficult section, 10 through 22, is about growing in grace. And if we lose that, if we take our eyes off of that ultimate purpose, then we can misunderstand this section or just kind of glaze over because this doesn't apply to me. But it does. And so remember, what he means by growing in grace is, is from the first chapter, he said, Jesus' divine power has given you everything you need for a godly life through the knowledge of him. So everything you need to grow in grace, to become more Christ-like, you have because he's told you about himself. And we connect with that. We lock into that through his precious and very great promises. 
by putting our hope in them and trusting in them. And so that's where he's going to go with this. He's going to take us to this place where that knowledge, that promise is threatened. And how do we navigate that? So don't take your eyes off the idea of growing in grace. That's what this is about. Okay, so that's the section. So let me start by recapping the story of Balaam. It's a very interesting story, and I found some of the details really helpful when we were working through this. So it's from Numbers chapter 22, 23, 24 is the story of Balaam. So what happens is Israel has left Egypt, and they're traveling through the wilderness. And as they're traveling, they're heading towards the promised land. They get to the area around Moab. It's a a nation that was kind of on the border of Israel. And they stop. Well, Balak, who is the king of Moab, looks out and sees this gigantic army, and he's terrified. This is huge amount of people, and he's thinking, if they stick around, they're going to drink up every single asset in this area. The water, the grass, everything is going to be gone. They're too big for me to fight, so what am I going to do? Well, if you're a king in the ancient Near East, what you did was you went and found a holy person to come and curse them. So that's what he does. He goes and he finds this man, Balaam. He sends a delegation to Balaam and he says, I want you to come and curse this nation. And so who is Balaam? Balaam is a really complicated figure. So listen to what happens. So he sends a delegation to, uh, to Balaam and Balaam says, hey, I can't do anything except for what God tells me to do. So let's spend the night. Maybe God will talk to me and I'll tell you tomorrow. And so they spend the night. God comes to him in a dream and says, don't go. God himself speaks to him. As a matter of fact, Balaam refers to God as Yahweh, my Lord. He uses the covenant name of the true and the living God. So is Balaam a real believer? Well, we don't know. Let's let's wait and see what happens with this. So so the delegation returns to Balak. He sends another one. And this time uh, Balaam says the same thing. Let's sleep on it. We'll see what happens. The Lord comes and he says, go with him. Balaam says, okay, let's, let's hit it. We'll go with him. So he hops on his donkey, grabs a couple of his servants, and heads off. So as he's traveling to catch up to Balak and and do the business, although he's warned him, look, I can only say what the Lord puts in my mouth. I can't do anything else. So no guarantees on this, but I'm going to come because you called me and the Lord said to. So as he's riding on his donkey, all of a sudden, the Lord opens the eyes of the donkey. And what the donkey sees is standing in the middle of the road is the angel of the Lord with his sword drawn. He's there to kill Balaam. It says that the Lord's anger was kindled against Balaam. And so the donkey turns into the field because the donkey doesn't want to get killed. So he beats the donkey, drives it back into the road. A little while later, they're passing through this really tight passage. And the donkey again sees the angel of the Lord standing there with his sword drawn. And so the donkey pushes against the side, trying to get away from the angel and crushes Balaam's foot. So he beats the donkey again. What are you doing? A little while later, they're going, and now there's a really narrow passage between two vineyards, two walls built, and there's no way to get around them. And so as they're approaching and the donkey sees the angel of the Lord standing there, she just lays down. Now, Balaam hasn't seen any of this. He just knows his donkey is acting stupid. And so he beats her again. The most amazing thing happens. God had opened the eyes of the donkey. Now he opens the mouth of the donkey, and she, she interrogates him. She says, what have I done to you that you've struck me these three times? And Balaam, without missing a beat, like this is normal that you would talk to your donkey without missing a beat. He said, because you made a fool of me. I wish I had a sword in my hand, then I'd kill you. 
And the donkey begins to reason with the unreasonable prophet and says, am I not your donkey on which you've ridden all your life long to this day? Is it my habit to treat you this way? And Balaam says, well, no. He's reasoning with his donkey. And then the Lord opened his eyes and he sees the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord speaks to Balaam and again, and he says, if it wasn't for that donkey, you'd be dead right now. Yes, my Lord. Go and don't say anything except what I tell you. And so he gets back on his donkey and he takes off. So that's, that's the history behind Balaam. There's a lot of questions in there. We're not going to touch them until we get to verse 15, where we introduce, reintroduce Balaam in this section, okay? Because it's, it's important. It's going to help us to understand this. So what is this section about? Well, remember how chapter 3 began. There were false prophets among the people. There will be false teachers among you. This section is about these false teachers. And the parallel between the false prophets and the false teachers, he's going to hold Balaam up as an example. And so that's what this is all about. We're going to learn about these false teachers. We're going to learn about their arrogance, about their model, and about their victims. So that, that's where this goes. So here's how it starts. It says, bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. I really racked my brain on this saying, okay, who are the glorious ones? There's a bunch of theories on it. There's a bunch of uh, uh, interpretations of it. One is the glorious ones are fallen angels. Right? Why are they glorious if they're fallen? But the other one is they're not fallen angels. And I'm like, well, then why would they blaspheme them? And what's going on there? And then uh, Calvin and some other uh, reformers thought it was magisterium. So like church leaders or local government or something. And they're the glorious ones. I don't have a clue. None of those were persuasive. You know what's really helpful with this? It doesn't matter who they are. We don't have to get technical about it. It's not about the glorious ones, whoever they are. What it is about is about the false teachers. The false teachers are bold and willful. They are so arrogant. They are so full of themselves that even if they see whatever a glorious one is, they feel they can rebuke it. They can, they can speak poorly of it. They can, they can diss whoever this glorious one is. They can blaspheme them. They, they have no fear. These, these false teachers think that they're so on top of it that nobody can tell them what to do. Nobody can tell them where they should be or what they should do or any of that stuff. So whoever the glorious ones are, they're not afraid of them. And, and I get the feeling maybe we should have some respect for whoever these glorious ones were. So verse 11, he says, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. So these guys are looking at the, the glorious ones and blaspheming them. The angels who are greater in power, who are, are a structure above these false teachers, they would never do what they're doing. They would never pronounce a blasphemous judgment. That's how arrogant these guys are. They are so full of themselves. They think that what angels would never do, I'm going to do. Where angels fear to tread, I'm there. That's the kind of people they are. So verse 12, he goes on and he says, but these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters they are ignorant, of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They are, they're like an irrational animal, a creature based of instinct. In other words, 
as these false teachers are doing this, they're not thinking through this logically and saying, how can I understand this? And what should be the right thing to do here? And they're just like, it feels good. Do it. I'm out there. I'm going to blaspheme. I'm going to talk bad about whoever I want to. I'm going to do. There is no rational order in their head. They're just reacting. They're like irrational animals of instinct. So they don't give us a moment's thought to it. They just do what they're going to do. And the problem with that is acting like that is they are like these animals who are who are instinctual and, and irrational who are caught to be destroyed. These are the animals you go out and capture. If, if there's a goat that's ch- chasing everybody around, you're going to go out and kill that thing. It's a danger. If there's a lion who's suddenly moved into the neighborhood and is attacking folks, you're going to kill that. So that's the, the picture of them is they're not thinking rationally and they're charging around doing whatever they want, bull in a, time, in a china shop kind of thing. So their destruction will be brought about them or brought on them because they're doing this. They're blaspheming about things of which they are ignorant. They have no idea what they're talking about, but they're talking boldly. And so they're going to suffer the wrong for the wage of their wrongdoing. It, it's, it's scary thinking about these kind of folks just charging around doing what they're going to do. Here's what it looks like when they're doing that. That's kind of a graphic picture. Here's here's something a little more tangible. Uh, Verse 13, they counted pleasure to revel in the daytime. That idea of reveling is being self-indulgent, that that whatever feels good, do it. And it says they're self-indulgent in the daytime. Is it okay to be self-indulgent at night? That's not what Peter means. What he's saying is these folks are so full of themselves, so do whatever they feel like, that they're piddling away their daylight hours, fooling around with this stuff. Now, we have the benefit of electricity, so we get light 24-7. I went TDY to Las Vegas years ago, and it came out of a casino. I had no idea what time it was because it was so bright. There were lights everywhere. We just are used to having lights on. But back in this day, when the sun set, you had these little candles or torches or stuff. You you couldn't operate at night. So the nighttime was actually a commodity. And these people are squandering that commodity of useful working hours to revel in their, their own indulgence, just feed their own desires. They revel in the daytime. They just party constantly. Peter then goes on. He says, they are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. So this idea of feasting with you, there was something that the early church practiced called the love fest, love feast. It was it was kind of a um, communion on steroids. It was not just a piece of bread in a cup. It was a full-blown meal. And the church would come together and celebrate these meals together. They were called love fests. And so what Peter is saying is these revilers are coming and they're, they're joining in these love fests. They're being part of the church and they're just partying it up. They're just tearing loose. So imagine if somebody showed up and and just was, you know, cranked up the music and everything and just blew away communion. They're blemishes. They're spoiling this. They have no respect for what's going on. Their eyes are full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They delight in indulging the flesh. And so who do you have adultery with? Not yourself. You have adultery with somebody else. They're they're preying on people around them. They're insatiable. They want more of this. They have eyes full of adultery. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained for greed. They want more for me, 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 me. That's who they are. And so 
Peter's response to that. How do you respond to somebody who acts like that? Accursed children. These are accursed children. It kind of reminded me of what Paul said in Ephesians 2. He says, accursed children. Um, uh, he says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. These are accursed children, children of wrath, instinctual, just satisfying the impulses of the body. It's a terrifying position for them to be in. And then he says in verse 15, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. So they are in around the church. They're hearing what's going on. They're hearing the preaching and teaching, and they're forsaking that. And instead, they're just going astray, going whichever way they want. So that's their arrogance. That's the kind of people we're talking about. Their model. What do they? How does Peter uh, frame this? Well, this is where he gets to Balaam. So he says they have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain with from wrong, wrongdoing, but was rebuked by his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. So one of the questions that comes up with the story of Balaam is, God says, don't go. Then he says, go. And then when he goes, he says, I'm going to kill you. And then he says, okay, I'm sorry. And then he says, okay, now go. And so it's like, what's going on here? Why is God changing his mind back and forth? God's not changing his mind. God is restraining the madness of the prophet. He, he is telling us Balaam is going to go and he thinks he's going to do whatever he wants to do. So he, he, he glad hands God and says, yes, I'll say whatever you want me to say. But God knows the condition of his heart. What Balaam is, is he looks like a real believer. He, call, he has the name of Yahweh on his tongue. He is going to say the actual words of God. He calls Yahweh my God, but he's not really a believer. He's not part of the family of God. And you can tell because God has to do these kind of things. It gets so outrageous that the prophet is about to speak incorrectly that the way to correct it is have a donkey talk to him. Donkeys don't talk. That's the point. So why is a donkey talking? Because the prophet is about to say something foolish. And so he opens the mouth of the donkey to correct him. This instinctual animal is more reasonable than the prophet. And so what happens is Balaam goes off with Balak. He heads off and Balak says, hey, glad you're here. Got this problem. Here's this big, huge bunch of people. Let me take you up on a mountain. You look at them and you pronounce a curse. Well, Balaam has learned his lesson. He's not about to do it. He, he, I think burning in his brain is that picture of the angel of the Lord with his sword drawn. His sword, sword drawn. Why do I keep saying that? Sword drawn. I think that's burned into his brain. And so when he gets up there, he opens his mouth. He only says what the Lord tells him to say, and he pronounces a blessing on Israel. Balak is really mad. What are you doing? I brought you here to curse him, and you're blessing him. Let me take you to a different position. So they go to a different mountain. Look, okay, so here's the other side of him. Now, now curse him, and he blesses him again. Happens four times. And then Balak is really mad and sends him on his way, and the story ends with Balaam goes home. And so is that the end of Balaam? He did what he was supposed to do. Is he true? A, a true prophet? No, it gets worse for Balaam. It gets a lot worse because what happens is in chapter 25 of Numbers, he trips up the people. So in chapter 25, it begins, while Israel was in Shittim, the people began to whore after the daughters of Moab. They invited the people to sacrifice to their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. 
and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. So what happens is they get to this place, Shittim, and they stop, and all of a sudden the women show up. Hey, guys, let's party. And Israel does. So it goes on in uh, uh, beginning of verse 6. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of the meeting. While Phineas, uh, when Phineas, the son of Elazier, uh, saw uh, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced them both, the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. Thus the plague of the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died from the plague were 24,000. Does that sound familiar? Somebody coming in and kind of enticing them and, and fleshly passions and that kind of stuff. Well, who did that? Whose idea was this? Behold, chapter 31, these on Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came upon the congregation of the Lord. Balaam did that. He, he went to Balak and he said, look, you guys, you're never going to fight them straight up. The Lord's on their side. You've got to get between them and the Lord. The way to get between them and the Lord is lure them astray. Get them to follow false gods. The way to do that is send the women in, entice them, woo them, and then they'll come after them. That's exactly what the false teachers are doing. They're coming in and they're telling Christians, look, you know, you're saved by grace, man. God did all the work. You don't have to do anything. So you, you can just do whatever you need to, whatever you want to. It's okay. God has made that all right. And it's enticing and it's alluring. And so, yeah, man, we can, you can you can get rich. Yeah, that's that's not a problem. You, it doesn't matter how you do it. Yeah, you can have lovers. It's it's all right because you're saved by grace. Anybody who tells you you're not saved by grace is lying to you. So don't follow them. It's it's almost the truth, but it's not quite. Balaam's doing the same thing. That's why Balaam frames this. Balaam couldn't be trusted. He appeared to be a, a prophet of Yahweh, and he wasn't. These false teachers who are so prideful, so boastful, they appear to be real teachers. They don't come in and start with heresy. They come in and start teaching stuff that sounds right. And then they just move off to the left a little bit and then a little bit more and then a little bit more. And the next thing you know, they're luring these people astray. This is what they're like. This is, this is the warning. So now let's talk about their victims. And this is where it kind of comes down to us. Starting in verse 17. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For speaking loud boasts to follow, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. Whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if they have escaped, for if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state becomes worse than the first. For it would have been better for them to have never known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. There's a lot of thems there, and it's hard to follow, it's hard to track through it. So let me go through and say that again. 
and translate the thems into who I believe they're speaking of. Okay, so verse 18, this is where it's really helpful to have your Bible in front of you. Verse 18, for speaking loud boasts of folly, the false teachers enticed by sensual passions of the flesh, those who are barely escaping from the false teachers who live in error. So there are two groups in mind in this last section, the false teachers and those who are barely escaping. I think when he talks about those who are barely escaping, he's talking about young Christians, new believers who are just beginning to grow in their faith, just beginning to understand what's going on. They're susceptible to these guys. So they come in and through sensual passions of the flesh, they're trying to lead these barely escaping people away. Verse 19, the false teachers promise those barely escaping freedom, but the false teachers themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. So the false teachers are coming in and and trying to convince these young Christians, look, you're free, man. Grace is free. God's done it all. You're all free. So so just enjoy this. But what they're really doing is they're enslaved to their sin. These false teachers are so bound up in their own sensuality and their own um, impulsiveness and their own pride and their own greed that they can't even see that they themselves are slaves to that. They call it freedom. And so those who are barely escaping are in danger of joining them. Verse 20, for if after those barely escaping have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that is they're growing in grace, those barely escaping are again entangled. If, if they began to escape, but now they're entangled again in the defilements of the world and overcome, That is, they're barely escaping and they failed to escape. If that's the case, then the last state for them has become worse uh, than the first. That is, barely escaping. There's a mouthful there. There's a whole bunch going on. Let me me see if I can't back off a little bit and, and kind of capture what's going on. So these young Christians are barely escaping the defilements of the world. They're just beginning to learn. They're growing in their knowledge of Jesus Christ. They're beginning to grasp and understand that the promises of God are better than the allurements of the world. They're just beginning to get that. That's, their eyes are opening up. Their hearts are growing in that. They're barely escaping. They're just beginning to move away from that. That's who they are. But the false teachers come along and say, hey, man, let's party, and want to drag them back into that. So what Peter says is if that's if they wind up backsliding, if they wind up going back into those defilements, their last state's worse than their first. So what he's saying is, Barely escaping, struggling with sin, wrestling with it, occasionally bumping back into it, occasionally falling, standing back up and going again. That's better than just throwing up your hands and going, I give. This is too hard. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna bask in whatever makes me happy. I'm gonna indulge in, in whatever it is. That state's worse than the state of struggling and wrestling through it. That's what he's trying to say. Verse 21. For it would be, or sorry, sorry, for it would have been better for those barely escaping never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to those barely escaping. So why is it better? If they had never come to the truth, if they had never heard the gospel, why would that be a better state than having backslidden into it? I, I think what, what Peter is getting at here is he's saying, So they have been introduced to the gospel. They've been preached. Here's the great and precious promises of God. Here's the glory of Jesus Christ. God incarnate came to take your sin. And they tasted it and they got engaged in it and they were barely beginning to move into it. And then they went, yeah, I don't want that. 
I'm going to go indulge the flesh again. That would be worse for them because now what are you going to come and tell them? They've already heard the truth and they've rejected it. It would be better had they not heard the truth, had they gone through those those, um, um, uh, fleshly desires and found them wanting, and then somebody come along and say, now here's the truth. They go, oh, thank heavens. I was so burned out. You just want to tell them, read the book of Ecclesiastes. That that's what's going on. They Solomon tried everything and nothing satisfied. It was only God that made it in the end. So that's what he's saying in the end is that it would be better had they never followed the holy commandment at that point in their lives than to have followed it and found it lacking and went to something else. So it's, it's a challenging section. It's a challenging picture. And then in verse 22, this is the one that really tripped me up. He says, what the true proverb says has happened to those barely escaping. The dog returned to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. So it can't be speaking of the false teachers, because the false teachers never left. They never gave up the vomit or the mire. They, they're continuing to wallow in it. This is those barely escaping, those folks who have stepped away and dove right back into it. So the false teachers can't be there. It must be those barely escaping. But didn't they escape? Well, apparently not, because what happens is there's a proverb that says dogs return to their vomit, pigs return to the mire. And that's what these people are like. They they had something disgusting. They gave it up and then they returned to it. But the good news is it's a proverb, not a law. It doesn't mean that every single person who's barely making it, who's struggling, who's barely escaping is going to return to their vomit. It's saying this can happen. This is something happens. So Proverbs are not promises. They're not laws. They're general statements. When, when you see somebody do that, then you, might, you utter the proverb. Look at this guy. You know, like a dog returning to his vomit. He's back doing what he was doing before. Like a pig wallowing in the mire. She's right back where she was before. So that's the picture he's painting there. So here's, here's the question. What awaits these false teachers then? What do they have to look forward to? If they have led these poor young Christians astray, these people who are really beginning to be introduced into the faith, and they let them astray, if they indulge themselves, what what awaits them? In verse 17, for the gloom of utter darkness, or for them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. There is a hell that God created for the fallen angels. It was intended for them. And now that's where these guys are going. That's where they're headed. Verse 12 and 13, but these like irrational animals, creatures of instinct born to be caught and destroyed, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for the wrongdoing. Their future is not conformity to the image of Christ. Their future is destruction. Eternal destruction, constantly being destroyed for the rest of eternity. And this goes back to chapter to uh, what we preached last week, verse 9 says, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. So what awaits them? There is a day coming where they will be judged. So how does this then fit into that general equation of grow in grace? How does this help us to grow in grace? It's horrible news. It's, it's really frightening to think about these kind of people. Well, what Peter is think is doing is he's showing us He's told us, remember, God's given you everything for a godly life. 
through the knowledge of Jesus, through his great and precious promises, then the next thing he says is, so make every effort to add to your faith virtue. And he lists all these different virtues that we have to gain in. What he's doing here is he's saying those false teachers who are coming in and promising all this great stuff, they're the exact opposite of that. Listen to this. He says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. What about the false teachers? They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They, they're not adding virtue to it. And to virtue with knowledge. What do they add? Well, blaspheming about matters about which they are ignorant. They have not added knowledge. They're just blaspheming. They're just shooting their mouths off. And to knowledge, self-control. Do these guys have self-control? They have hearts trained for greed. No self-control. I want, I want, I want. Me, me, me. And to and, um, self-control with steadfastness, immobility, being, remaining firm and true in the faith. These are waterless springs and drifts, mists driven by a storm. They're all over the place. And steadfastly, steadfastness with godliness. These guys, they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. There's no godliness in them. And godliness with brotherly love. Do, are they concerned about others? Nope. They entice unsteady souls. They entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping. That's not brotherly love. And in the end, brotherly, brotherly love with love. And the only thing they love is themselves and their sin. These are a danger to your growing in grace. You're not going to gain those virtues that Peter has commended to us if you follow these teachers. They're the exact opposite of it. They're going in the other direction. So what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to handle this? What are we supposed to do with this? Well, we have to, first of all, recognize there are people like this out there. And they're, they're, they're around. Um, I said last week, YouTube just amplifies them. They're everywhere. But all over the place, even in personal life. So be aware that they could be like Balaam. And they can talk of Yahweh and, and say, you know, this is thus saith the Lord and, and quote scripture and those kind of things. That's not how you judge them. That's not how you evaluate them. You look at the fruit of their life. What are they doing? That's where the red flags come up. And second of all, the people that Peter focused on were not the more mature Christians, but those barely escaping Christians, those folks who are just beginning to grow in the faith. And what, what we have to do is as a group, as a church gathered together, what we have to do is watch out for those. We have to keep an eye out for those struggling in the faith and say, hey, brother, don't hang around with this. Don't, don't listen to this stuff. This is bad for you. They're, they're not going to make you more godly. They're going to make you less godly. And so we have to be watching out for each other in this. And even those of us who are more mature, we can, we're still human. We can still fall for some of these mistakes. We can fall for some of these tricks. And, and some of this stuff sounds really good and really plausible. You should, you should see how smart people can be to be so dumb. The, some of the things that they have to say to distort and twist the scriptures They've got to be utter geniuses, and then they're utter fools because they're doing exactly the wrong thing. We're all susceptible to this. That's why Peter is writing to us. He wants us to grow in grace. These guys are not going to cause you to grow in grace. Don't follow them. Be aware of them. Watch out for them. Watch out for each other. Watch out for your younger brothers in Christ. Help them to grow. Help them to head towards what's true and right and what's real. At the end, Peter said, for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted 
that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Don't lack these qualities. These are the qualities we have to be pursuing. And, and we're doing it not in order to be saved, but because we're in grace. Then we are now fit, given what we need to pursue these qualities. So that's where he goes with this. It, it's a scary prospect that that threat is on the horizon. So where he's going to go in chapter three, in chapter three, he's going to talk some about what the doctrines they're denying are. And, and where he goes with it, he's talking about the return of the Lord. They're going to deny the return of the Lord. And so he's going to help us to understand that. That's an easier section than this was. I hope I hope I made that clear. I hope I handled it fairly well because it really broke my brain trying to get my head around this stuff. So I'm, I'm hoping that you guys benefited from my broken head. Um, so with that, let's let's pray. Lord, it's your word, and these are your people. Holy Spirit, you have sealed all of us, and you've inspired this word. And so, Lord, we are trusting that as we've studied this, you have brought to home to our hearts what we need to know from your scriptures. Lord, would you open our minds, open our hearts? Would we grasp onto these images that you've painted for us? And Lord, I pray that we would all resist the doctrine of Balaam, that we would be aware of the lure of money and fame and being called important and, and being thought sexy and all of those things that the world wants to entice us with. Lord, I pray that we would recognize those as the, the, the lure Balaam put before Israel. And Lord, like them, would we re repent and turn. Lord, I pray that you would make us all like Phineas, that we would take that spear and drive it through whatever sin that's happening in our hearts and pin it to the ground. And Lord, that that may stay the plague of unbelief, of lacking holiness, and that would make us more and more like Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for your word. As challenging as it can be, as difficult as it can be to hear, we're grateful that you've given it to us. Engage our minds and our hearts with what you've taught us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.